Are we ready? Ready, Stephen? Okay. All right. Uh, as you know, um, last uh, three weeks, we started on a series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. And that's the last three messages, because I, I did two on a Sunday that John and Emily were at a wedding in Missouri. And uh, today I'm actually moving on from the introduction, which we called Introduction Part Zeros, A, B, and C, which was just introduction to the eight uh, elements. So today I'm going to start on covering one element at a time. And I decided I'm going to, since we're at, on Tuesday and Thursday nights, if you're not aware of this, we're having prayer every night at the church, uh, Monday through Thursday from 6.30 to 7.30. And uh, everyone's invited to those. And if you uh, need to get into a place where you're uh, experiencing the presence of God more and flowing in God's spirit and so forth, uh, it, it's really hard to do that, in, especially in your younger Christian age, uh, uh, unless you're worshiping together with some other saints two or three times a week. Uh, obviously, you can get filled with the Spirit and full of the presence of God by yourself in your prayer study, reading your Bible and worshiping and things like this. But it really does help to uh, attend a few prayer meetings. And we're really uh, beginning to see some fruit of that. We had a wonderful sense of God's presence in the prayer and worship Friday night and so forth. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, in, in addition, on Tuesday and Thursday nights, we're basically teaching all about disciple making. Now, I'm mostly doing that for a few leaders at Wright State uh, who are coming all the time, but uh, if you just came once in a while, you're certainly welcome. And uh, we're not being as concise on Tuesday and Thursday night as we are on Sunday mornings. On Sunday mornings, we kind of limit things to about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, something like that. Whereas, uh, you know, we're uh, basically keeping things under 80 minutes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, so um, I decided since we're doing this theme of making disciples that I would uh, spend the rest of the summer until the right state students get back uh, just going through these eight essential elements of the gospel and uh, probably going to take around an average of two weeks per element. Uh, we have 15 Sundays between now and the right state students return on Labor Day Sunday or the Sunday after Labor Day, I believe it is. And uh, so um, uh, here we go. Tonight, today we're going to look at the first element. If you look at Roman numeral two on your uh, uh, outline, you'll see the eight essential elements listed. And the first one is the attributes of God. Now, just by way of review, we talked uh, in our introduction, we talked about the importance of lifestyle evangelism and proclamation evangelism. People falsely try to pit one against the other and say, oh, I'm not into proclamation evangelism. I'm not into going out and sharing the gospel. I want to show things by our lifestyle. The Bible clearly commands us to do both in dozens and dozens of scriptures in the New Testament. That's kind of the whole thrust of the New Testament. Uh, we definitely need to seek to go out and share our faith and we need to live our faith. Uh, then we talked a little bit about a thing that's gonna be important today called being pre-evangelized. Um, in, uh, if you go to most churches today, a lot of the ideas that may go back as much as 50 or 150 years about how to share the gospel are kind of rooted in a time when most people had some Christian upbringing. And so they're really kind of designed 
to call people who had some exposure to God or, or started the Christian life, but then backslid and fell away, kind of called back to God. But today, even people who've gone to church, in lots of ways, the going to church has been more of a detriment than a help. And because uh, they've uh, received low expectations of God, a performance-based view of God, and any number of wrong ideas that really have kept them from God. So um, now, um, with that in mind, when we talk about, uh, well, let me go to point C, and I'm not going to cover point D on Roman numeral one. That's going to, I just put that there for those of you who can follow that. But that is going to be covered uh, Tuesday night in a whole teaching about worldviews. But uh, good news demands true bad news is point 1C. And uh, we've talked a lot about that, and it's the idea of called, that I call reading the reverse negative. But if, if there's good news, there must be bad news. And if you study both the secular ideas about the nature of man and, and psychology and sociology and so forth, that have emerged since the uh, 19th century, the 1800s, uh, in, in the postmodern world, all of those deny the, the Bible's view of God, the Bible's view of man, and, and therefore they actually deny the true news, which is not necessarily good news about where you're at. And so most people who've come to Christ in our culture have come in very superficial ways. If, if at all. And the idea of getting, getting them converted in something that looks like a biblical Christianity and also a healthy Christianity that really is going to do them spiritual, emotional, psychological good, is, is they're far from that. Uh, because, so with that in mind, let's transition to talking about the attributes of God and if you look at my subtitles up at the top, I, I want to say this a couple different ways. When you talk about the attribute of God, you could say the nature of God or the characteristics of God. But a kind of a simple way to say it is, what is God like? Now, uh, because here's the problem. Ever since the fall of man, in Genesis 9, uh, 3, 9, Adam hid from the presence of God. Because after sin entered the world, all fallen men have too harsh, too performance-based, too twisted of a view of God. And they've bought the lie that God is trying to hold them back from something. That if they fully sell out to God, if they fully get on fire for God, that it's not going to be as good a life. That's the... The thief comes only to kill, rob, and destroy, and that's his philosophy. If I get totally radical about Jesus and join a community of Christians that's totally radical about Jesus and actually submit my, my goals and my ambitions to God and, and go by the counsel I'm given and so forth, that, that I'm going to have something that I'm missing. And as long as you have that, life will toss you all over the place. It's when you no longer seek to save your life, but you surrender your life to his will that, that, that health starts to begin. And um, so one of the, so with this uh, whole question of what God is like, uh, I, I really want to just throw this out. Is your God too 
Notice I put the G in small letters because what I'm trying to help us see is that we all have an image of God in our heart and our mind, but that doesn't necessarily match the real God of Scripture. That's really what we're trying to address today, and that's what you have to address if you're ever going to help people come truly to Christ out of religious religion and shallowness and, and troubles. And If you really want to help people, it has to start with their seeing God for who he really is, as we're going to talk about today. Do you, I hope we see that. Most people's God is too small. And that's uh, something that developed uh, with the loss of the Puritan consensus and the Protestant Reformation view. Uh, people began to not see God as sovereign and not see God as in control. So my uh, terrible marriage or my addiction problem or my mental health problem or my uh, gluttony problem, it, that's, that's too big and God's too small, which is a lie. Uh, there's actually a book I'm recommending these days. Uh, I always forget, is it Ed Welsh or Welch? Sydney, what's his last name? Welsh. Uh, which basically is when when God people are too big and God is too small. You know, people get all kinds of codependent relationships, and they get all kinds of what the Bible, what we would refer to around here as illegal relationships or uh, illegal soul ties. They get all kinds of relationships with people that aren't healthy for them because they're grasping for something. You know, like the, the, uh, there used to be this dorky kind of music called disco, and they had this song, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> uh, not cool, but but a good point. <laughs> um, was that considered disco, those of you who are old enough to know? That's some, something like that. that. What is it? Mickey Gilly was the, the the person? You actually know who made it? Well, amazing. Pop culture trivia experts. All right. Yeah, you know, is your God too small? Is he bigger in your heart and mind than whatever you're facing? Another thing, is he lacking power? Uh, one of the problems that we have today is we don't have uh, an expectation of miracles, casting out demons, inner healing, big changes for people in quick ways because we have a very natural-minded way, way uh, philosophy in, in the world, in the Western culture, and unfortunately in the church. And actually it's interesting in, that Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, list off, says in the last days there will be this, 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 and this, and this. And then he goes on to say, men who hold to a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Now, I believe that scripture applies to the last days of Israel before the coming judgment that was about to happen. Uh, but it also just applies to people and cultures and religion in general. Religion uh, that denies the power thereof, Paul goes so far as to say, avoid such people as that. Now, we try as best as possible for Christian unity but when people are saying God doesn't heal today, God doesn't baptize people in the spirit, people don't speak in tongues today, people don't prophesy today, people don't get delivered from emotional problems, Our God, your God is not powerful, we don't want to associate with a God like that. 
he is a spirit and therefore, and that's actually one of the points I kind of forgot, you know, as I'm doing the outline today, but God is a spirit that we cover that quite a bit in our four part series called the baptizing the Holy Spirit series. But wherever there, wherever God is manifesting his presence, there must be by definition, supernatural activities. There has to be healings. There has to be new births. For someone to actually change their attitude about their sin and about seeking God and about being teachable or something of this nature, that can only happen by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. You can't just try harder. In fact, you have to kind of empty yourself of trying harder and say, God, I can't, I can't even want to change. I was sharing with somebody, a testimony too many of you have heard too many times that, you know, when God was dealing with me about quitting smoking marijuana, I, you know, like all addicts, I had all kinds of excuses and reasons why I was putting it in the future. Well, you know, and, and finally I said, Lord, I can't, I can only, I not only can't quit, I can't even want to quit. <laughs> and uh, I love this sin. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love it. So, and within a couple weeks of that, uh, God had totally delivered me from it. But I had to get to a point where I had no more trust in my efforts. And that's true of every issue of your life, where you rely on the power. So is your God too limited in spiritual power? You know, we're going to have Emily's mom here in a few weeks, and she's going to do a thing that uh, is getting popular these days called a sozo. But it combines the ideas that we also combine when we do deliverance and stuff of inner healing and deliverance. And, you know, if I were to list the, uh, the, the 5, 10, 12 people in our church who've made the most spiritual progress since we met them, uh, all of them have gone through... Um, reading the book, Total Forgiveness Experience, and do, get, doing a lot of work on forgiving everyone who's wronged them in their life, including their perceptions of God having given them a bad deal or whatever. They've all had inner healing, and they've all had deliverance. Because uh, it, Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God is among you. So as we go through these attributes today, I, I kind of want you to just ask the question, is my God too small? Is he too limited? Is he too unforgiving? Is your God too harsh? Is your God holding it in your face that you did this or that? I was talking to a pastor guy once who had grown up under a manipulative pastor who basically... Uh, had for like for 20 some years said, re, you're not uh, able to go in the ministry because remember that sin you committed before you were Christian, <laughs> which had become long since irrelevant. If anyone's in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. What matters is who is God la- making you to be today? It, what you, what, what failure you had on, uh, I could care less because sometimes the school of failure is the road to success. If it brings the school of humility and and learning how to tap into God's grace instead of your own strength. Hopefully we get it. We all get that. So let's, uh, let's get into these, these attributes of God and hopefully uh, see a bigger God. Now, 
Um, I'm not going to read those verses in Romans, but we're basically every point we're making today touches on these uh, verses in Romans. And if we remember what we shared about Paul when he was in Athens, he was talking to people who had an, an, an idol that said to an unknown God, and they had no idea of who God was. I suggest to you that more, even people who've gone to church are more like that than they are like the pre-evangelized people of Acts 2 today. You will not help somebody get solid in Christ without helping them re-examine who God is, both in their mind and hopefully working it down to their heart. Had a long talk with a wonderful person yesterday, and we were talking about how sometimes people will get a certain level of success uh, but maybe there's different underlying reasons uh, that the things that they haven't dealt with. And then after they have some success, then they'll have a failure. And it's a lot harder uh, to, to, to forgive yourself and receive God's forgiveness. When you, when you first come to the Lord, uh, you know, you kind of hopefully understand in the gospel that, that uh, gee, we're all sinners and we're all wicked and we all need a lot of forgiveness. But then as you make some progress and you have some other failures, so sometimes you have these expectations that were so performance-based that I should have never let God down, like Peter, uh, who said to Jesus, you know, Lord, I'll never deny you. <laughs> and, uh, and John did a wonderful teaching recently, uh, I encourage you to listen to it on the podcast if you didn't hear it a couple times already, about Jesus restoring Peter. So um, as we go through these things, um, it's important to have some of the right characteristics of God. And all of those are on the back side of your page. So let's turn these over. Now, I'm going to start with a kind of a heavy-duty theological term that uh, those of you who are, who've taken our theology class have, uh, even the third, third group that's going through it now has already passed this point in the class. And it's called the non-communicable attributes of God. Now, by that, we don't mean we can't talk about them. We mean more like in a communicable versus non-communicable disease. A non-communicable attribute of God is something that God alone has, and you can't catch it, so to speak. God is eternal. We all had a fixed point of conception and a fixed point of, of birth, and although we will exist in, in the presence of God or outside the presence of God forever going forward, we are not eternal. We're not outside and above time, have never having a beginning or an end. God is eternal. So with that in mind, um, that's what we call the non-communicable attributes of God, ones that people cannot have. Now, you can have a piece of them, but you can't have the fullness, the omniness of it, the all-encompassingness of it. So, what you, you know... Um, Two, two young budding theologians in our church had an argument two or three weeks ago about whether God's omniscience is a non-communicable attribute or a communicable attribute. Because the person who said, well, it's communicable, said we can grow in the knowledge of God, which is true. But you can never grow in the knowledge of God so that you're omniscient, so that you know, know everything. Does that make sense? So that's what we mean by non-communicable. All right, so the, I'm going to give us five non-communicable attributes of God, and I've purposely, for the sake of helping people in the gospel, I have purposely not gone with the formula you'd get in, in uh, say, Wayne Grudem's theology, uh, systematic theology, 
or uh, the book that I highly recommend called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Chantry or Tozier, A.W. Tozier. Uh, sorry, uh, Chantry's another guy. A.W. Tozier, there's another one by A.W. Pink called uh, the, the, the Attributes of God, but I, Tozier's is, is better for my money, uh, so to speak. But what I'm trying to do here sometimes is combine two or three in one point because these are important for helping both the religious and the non-religious come to God. And one of the things that I've uh, discovered, Jesus says he who uh, loves, has been forgiven much, loves much. Some of the hardest people to get lit, lit on fire for God are basically people who have never seen themselves as particularly that sinful. That in their mind, I, they're a pretty good person and always have been. And uh, so they don't need a rescuer. They need a, th a little bit of therapy or a few better ideas. So that's important. So um, um, let's get into this. The first one I combined is the eternally existent uh, trinity. The three, God is eternally existent in three persons. So I'm combining three ideas here, but this is important. Every person needs these ideas or they can't come to Christ. One is God is outside and above time. Logic demands that there must be someone or something that's the primary first mover because nothing from nothing, there, I think there used to be a song that nothing from nothing is nothing or something like that. Uh, you got to have nothing or whatever. Uh, nothing gives birth to nothing. So the, one of the problems with the evolutionary wor worldview is you must postulate that matter was eternal and that somehow in the mystery of things, life spontaneously regenerated from non-life and that contrary to the first and second law of thermodynamics, it contains some upward principle of getting more complex over time instead of mutating to worse things and de-evolving over time. None of those principles have been found in the universe. So um, there has to be someone or something that is eternal and started all things. The, the fact that you can't build a box in your mind big enough, if you go back as far as you can go on a graph and, and further, you can't get there, doesn't negate that someone or something had to start at all. The Bible never argues for the existence of God. It just asserts it. That's, and they, there's this old saying that there's, there's no atheist in foxholes. There's all kinds of documented evidence of some of the greatest atheists of all time crying out to God on their deathbed as they began to perceive and sense eternity apart from the presence of God and recanting their ideas, including Charles Darwin. So, you know, the Bible says the fool is said in their heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have been come com committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So the first thing you need to know is that God exists and man has a sin problem. And that sin problem isn't about drunkenness and all that. Those are the leaves of the tree. The root of the tree is that we're God deniers. That we don't want to seek God, that we don't want to surrender to God, that we want to invent gods that are smaller than he is. 
We want to, we, with the, the crowds lined up like a rock concert to buy Origin of the Species, and it sold out in a few hours, be, and people had camped out overnight to get a copy because people were looking for an explanation of the world that doesn't involve God. Because if there's a God, we're accountable. So um, I like Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. I like uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. But I also like being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, almost everyone you're talking to knows there's a God. The way everyone does know, how deeply they've suppressed it is a matter the Holy Spirit can help you with. And a lot of times I just say, you know that God exists. You know this is what he's saying to you. You know uh, because the Spirit of God is bearing witness to your spirit. That's what Jesus said in John 15, 26, and 27, that when he went to be with the Father, he would send another helper who would bear witness of the resurrection. And they would also bear witness because they'd been with him from the beginning. But Christianity is not just based on our witness, which is a great and powerful tool, but it's also based on the witness of the Holy Spirit speaking to their spirit and helping them have ears to hear. So I pray, God, give them ears to hear your word. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, I thank God that when you heard from us the gospel of the kingdom, you heard it for what it really is, the word of God and not of men. As I say all the time, I could care less about my ideas. The reason I've studied and studied and studied scripture and apologetics and philosophy and theology and all these things is because uh, our, my mind is a puny little peanut. And I'm trying to understand an infant God. And I want to represent him as well as possible because his word is truth. Though every man is a liar, he is true. And his word is a fire and a hammer that breaks the rock. And his word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. And I want to become an expert swordsman, helping people by the word of God see what has held them back, what has blinded them. People's lives are destroyed from being held back by being blinded to the truth. So the Bible always asserts the existence of God and that he's outside and above time, and that he is one God in three persons, which is a mystery. But the importance of that mystery is this. All of life has the principle of the one and the many in it. Hopefully we are one church working. The reason we teach and so much here at our church and, and, and encourage people to take catechism classes, systematic theology classes, etc., in know the word and so forth, is we want to be one people with one vision. And we want to be diverse people with diverse personalities, gifts, and interests and talents. The one and the many principle goes through anything. A good marriage is never uh, the husband and wife are exactly the same. It's that their gifts uh, clash and conflict and so forth, and they've learned how to make that a positive instead of a negative which is take some maturity and some doing. But, uh, you, you know, one of the reasons it's good to grow up in a house with brothers and sisters is the give and take of, you know, you don't see things the same. And uh, if you can learn the, to make conflict resolution a positive part of life, you'll be a much wiser, broader person. That principle, so that's the first point, the one and the many, the eternally existent God. 
Next is the Omnis. If you go to uh, Ted Turner's uh, World Congress Center, it's right next to the Omni Dome, which means all or you know all encompassing because he thinks it's a place for the whole world kind of thing. He's a little megalomaniac sometimes, but uh, God is not. God is omnipresent, which means He's everywhere. I got to be quick with these, but so I'll just introduce the ideas. That means that God is fully present today in over, probably over 1 million Christian congregations that are meeting on the Lord's day and where Jesus said, if two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. And it's not like he spread out like peanut butter. If we, you know, if we ask John Bradbury, my good friend, John Bradbury, to be at uh, 10 churches at the same time, and fixing his car and truck at the same time, and uh, all the th different things he does, he'd be like, how am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> you can't, but God can. He's fully here. And, you know, when Jesus Christ takes residence in your life, the fullness of God dwells in your spirit as a temple. Wow. Not part of God, all of God. He's omniscient. He never has to remember anything because he never forgot anything. He knows all facts, past, present, and future. He knows the end from the beginning, and as we studied in the Kingdom of God series with eternal decree, he declares the end from the beginning. Isn't that awesome? He's omnipotent. That's very important because you know what? This is a church uh, that we specialize in people with problems. If you don't have problems, you're not welcome here. <laughs> if you really got it together and you, and you want to banter around and, and size people up for like who knows more and who's more godly and who's got the right theology, go somewhere else. We're a mess. Chocolate mess, vanilla mess, we're just a mess. <laughs> and, you know... Um, because the gospel is for sinners. Now, Paul said he was foremost of all. I can't wait to get to heaven to discuss that with Paul, because I wonder if maybe we're all supposed to think we're the foremost sinner of all. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, Paul is making a good case. He was a murderer of Christians and so forth. He had a few problems, but uh, <laughs> very self-righteous, uh, you know, relig and religion is a huge problem. So... I don't know if he really is the foremost of sinners or that was his perception of himself. But in any case, um, I love the fact that, you know, if we were to ask, like, who was the most messed up and the most sinful and did the most crazy, sinful, terrible things in our church, we could have a lot of debate. <laughs> we got a lot of candidates. <laughs> and some of those candidates are the most religious people who never drank a beer or stole anything or anything else. And their problem is that they're apathetic about God because they are too self-righteous. And maybe that is worse than having done all kind of crazy, nutty things and, and, uh, tr and God having truly granted your repentance from them. I think perhaps it is. Third thing, God is transcendent creator. Now, this is important, uh, and this is why the whole attack against God is to deny creation. 
Because if God created all things, Colossians 1.16, for by him, Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers and authority, all things have been created through him and for him. I like that visible and in. In other words, demons, angels, heaven, hell. There's invisible things that are created. Just as, you know, we live in a time, uh, modern times, when people are skeptical about the unseen and we only acknowledge the physical, chemical side of life. I remember uh, back in the 80s, standing on the front porch of the uh, campus ministry house at Ohio State University and uh, talking to these Chinese students who lived next door who had just gotten here from communist China, and they had been brought up in a philosophy called dialectical materialism. And so it was the first time they were ever considering, they had been brainwashed to believe there's only what you can see, taste, hear, and feel. And they were like, you think there's an unseen part of life? that we actually have like an unseen soul inside. It's not just neurons and protons and chemicals firing that we actually, that, that our mind is something beyond our brain. You think there's going to be a final judgment? You think there's a creator God who made this all? You think there's angels and demons? And they were actually like, we got to hear more about this. Because we live in a time where Western culture has systematically denied all that. But just because a little kid goes like this doesn't mean you can't see him, which is how the Bible depicts our fallen sinful nature. We, I, I love when kids go through that stage. Has Samuel gone through that stage yet? Or play peekaboo. And, and uh, um, it's just so fun because they, they can't figure out for a few weeks that when they hide their eyes that you can't see them. <laughs> and that's the essence of the fallen nature of man. Fallen man is things you're, you're, you know, whenever you sin, it's because you think you're getting away with it. When you, when you have too small a God, it's because you think that if you don't acknowledge him, he can't see you. But that just isn't so. Now, transcendent is very important because as, as if we had time to develop those verses in Romans, all false religions worship and serve a form of the creation instead of the creator. So in, in many Eastern religions, for instance, there's the, the God of the rock and the God of the frog. And the God uh, in Western religions, there's the God of money and the God of nice things and the God of conveniences. And there's the God of man's reason and man's science but it's all creature worship and it's all worshiping the creation and people are held back. They have a, a kind of monkey they catch by putting out these little jars and they put an apple in the bottom and they make the neck of the jar just the right size. So when the monkey sticks its hand in and puts his hand to get the apple, he can't get his hand back out while his hands around the apple and they harvest these monkeys and sell them in pet stores and everything else because the monkey so greedy for the apple, he won't let go when he could just let go and pull his hand out of the jar anytime. And they just come along and harvest them, stuck with their hand in the jar. And that's the essence of sin. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. I have pleaded with people, give up your ambition to do this and that, lay it on the altar of God. But because they can't have enough trust in God to lay it on the altar of God, they can never get set free. 
whatever your whatever your addiction, whatever your vocational ambition, whatever your marital ambition, whatever whatever you got, lay it on the altar of God. And when it's really dead, God will resurrect it and you'll it you'll have it and it won't have you anymore. And you will never make any progress. You'll be in the starting point of the Christian faith until you do that. So it's important to under, help people understand this is a transcendent God. He does whatever he wants. I'm actually sharing the gospel with a guy who's really blind. And he always says he wants to become a Christian and so forth. But then he has the opportunity to have an appointment uh, with a patient on Sunday mornings sometimes. And, it's, and he'll make like $30. And he can't give up that $30 uh, to, to go spend time with God or with his people. And so he's, he's the monkey with his hand in the, in the jar wrapped around his $30 when, when in fact, takes, I, I can't even believe that anyone would sell out for, for any money, but let alone $30. $30 can probably still get you pizza, but, uh, but, not, but not a whole lot of pizza. <laughs> you better not have many friends if you only got $30. <laughs> so... Uh, that's why the Bible says a man of many friends comes to ruin. Because <laughs> if you have many friends, you need a lot more than $30 for pizza. <laughs> so uh, uh, do you understand? God is transcendent. Next, God is judge, lawgiver, covenant, and covenant maker. Now, we're going to touch on these things as we go through things like the Ten Commandments, the third part, and so forth. And by the way, the first three of these things are the three components of a worldview. The attributes of God corresponds to... to uh, who or what is ultimately real. The nature of man is the second thing. And thirdly, is man in society or law. But uh, as we do, I want you to understand this. God, God as a judge is not popular anymore. Nobody talks, you know, in fact, they mock anyone who might talk about fire and brimstone or something. But there is no presentation of the kingdom or the gospel in the Bible uh, in the book of Acts or anywhere else that doesn't have an, a, a warning of God's impending judgment. And you need to understand that God is eternal, so you will be judged and chastised now by the, the wages of sin is death. When you, when you don't give your whole life to God and find grace to become Christ-like and God-like, your sins will cost you. They're painful, and they break relationships, and they and they cause health problems, and they, and they mess up your head. There's no getting around that. Now, our God is a great forgiver, as we're going to get to here. But he's also a great judge. He visits the, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. One of the things I constantly appeal to parents about is pay the price to have a great marriage and pay the price to become godly and pay the price for your character. Even if you're 80, it's worth starting this journey towards Christ and going as radical as you can because it'll impact your children and your grandchildren how far you go with it in positive ways. My grandmother came to Christ at the age of 77 and died at the age of 81. 
and she radically changed. A bitter, controlling, nasty woman became a very loving, kind, amazing woman. And some of my greatest memories and my wife's greatest memories is our last two visits with her before she died. When she was not the kind of person you wanted to be around before she came to Christ. So God is a judge. In Acts 17, when Paul is talking to the, to the Athenians, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has been given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now here's what we do now. In the name of being seeker-sensitive, we talk only about the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, and chastisement is love. If you love your son, the Bible says, you will discipline him and deliver his soul from hell. You know, there, uh, love is not mushy. It's truthful, and it's challenging, and it's mushy and encouraging. It's admonishing, it's instructing with all patience and instruction. We don't want a, a pastor or a church. Uh, we don't want to read the scriptures that way and have them read us. We don't want to be in an environment where there's admonishment, correction, and so forth. Just all you're about to have a breakthrough. All you know, that's all we want to hear all the time. Well, the problem is it, you know, it doesn't work that way. You, you need to understand uh, God is a judge in order to understand his mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. Guess what? Mercy that's triumphing over nothing is not mercy, it's deception. It's the cult of weaklings. People who are all encouraging, all merciful, all compassion, all the time, are usually insecure people who are telling themselves they're being loving and they're just overcoming deep, they're just trying to compensate for deep-seated insecurities which is our whole culture anymore. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into Christ. If you're going to grow, you got to hear some hard things. It's got to make you uncomfortable. Hard preaching makes soft hearts. Soft preaching makes hard hearts. Next, God is sovereign, gracious redeemer. Now I'm combining a bunch there. But here's the problem with most views of Christ today with what they call, I don't want to get into theological terms, but the views of God today are heavy on man and man's goodness and man's choice and so forth. You need to understand God is sovereign. He, he declares the end from the beginning. He's in control of your life, and he's gracious and a redeemer. He wants to do you good in the end. If you ever lose hold of either of those ideas in your mind and your heart, your life will crash. There's actually three ideas you have to keep a hold of to, to always be making progress in, in uh, Christ, in that they are uh, faith in his sovereignty, faith that he actually cares, and the difficult things you're going through can become your ministry, and your weaknesses and problems can become his great testimony and his great strength. If you don't believe that, you'll never get better. And you got to keep a good conscience. That is, 
we all screw up all the time. Paul talks about those who, who have lost faith and a good conscience and suffered shipwreck according to the faith. The way you keep a good conscience is by constantly having it renewed by the scriptures, by the Lord's Supper, by counseling, and by confessing. Confessing means the same thing God says. It means to constantly be repenting. There was a really dumb movie back in the 70s that had this saying, love means never having to say you're sorry. And that's probably could be the most insane idea of all time. Because love means saying you're sorry all the time before the Spirit of God and, and asking him to give you a truly repentant heart where you don't just have remorse and you're sorry about the consequences, but you're really sorry about it, how it's affected your relationship with him. And if you have that, all the, you'll never crash. If you trust that he's good and he's in control... And, and, uh, and you keep you, you refreshing your conscience before him, you'll never crash. He wants to save you. I want to read this verse for, and I want, I want to say that I, I, there's at least 10 people sitting right here that I, that I felt like this, God wanted them to have this verse for you personally. I, you know, I'm encouraging you to make this one of your life verses. Jeremiah 29, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Things might look bad now. This was given to Israel when they were in bad shape. They were in the Babylonian captivity. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek with me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore. And then he begins to list the things that he'll restore. God wants to restore everything in your life that was damaged by the fall of man, by other sinful people, by the situation you grew up in, by the addictions and habits and mistakes we've made, God wants to do you good. He came to redeem you. And he's big enough and he's powerful enough if you'll use all his tools of grace to do it. Lastly, the communicable attributes of God. He's personable. It's very important that we see that he's not an it. I, the reason I don't like a lot of the modern expressions of the church is because the success is measured in dollars or numbers of people. Success has to be measured one person at a time. If we lose that, we've lost everything. How much are you willing to lay down your life and spend hours and hours and hours and hours helping one person make it? We need to stay a church that we're all willing to do that. And we're, the reason we're studying the three different views of counseling, the reason we're studying deliverance, the reason we're studying inner healing, the reason we're studying solid theology is because we need to multiply the number of people who can spend hours helping people get it together in Christ because God has given them every spiritual blessing in Christ. They just need someone to help them learn how to get, get there. And you can only take them there if you've been there yourself. I was at Odd Lots yesterday, and this young man who was the most zealous young worker I've ever seen in our day, I asked him where such and such was, and he goes, it's back this way. Just come on with me. I'll show you. And he takes me all the way to one side of the store. Then I'm like, well, where's the, you know, the grill covers? Oh, they're up here in the front side of the store. And uh, even after I found everything, he kept saying, now, before I leave, 
have you got everything you were looking for? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's the kind of leader I want. Like, he, this guy's going to stay with me as long as it takes for me to remember everything on my list and find it. <laughs> and he's not going to just say, it's back in housewares, somewhere between aisle 27 and 29. <laughs> I hate that. Uh, he was personable. God is a father. Now, we haven't had uh, the best fathers in the world, even those of us who had godly and Christian fathers. Our fathers make mistakes. I regret a lot of things I uh, was still growing in as my kids were growing up, let's say. But God is a father of the fatherless. He's a judge for the widows in his holy habitation. He makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity, and only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. That is so true. Yes, Hebrews 12 talks about how he chastises every son he receives, and God's love is not all gooey all the time. But if you find that balance of correction, admonishment, and encouragement, and, and so forth that God has, God can, God can take you out of any level of troubles. Lastly, God is merciful and loving, and the whole point of the gospel we're going to be studying as we go forward in this series the whole purpose of, of this series is, is that God, who is a holy God, and, and, and we do deserve his wrath, and we do deserve our sins to mess up our life and everything else, God it, it does not want to leave you there. He didn't just come to forgive your sins like in modern times. He came to restore you to everything you were intended to be to, so that your life is more together if God could show you how together he's making you, you wouldn't be able to believe it. Amen.